Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. In 1959, Jay Luvas published his classic work, The Military Legacy of the Civil War, The European Inheritance, in which he argued that European armies learned, or more accurately failed to learn, from the American Civil War as they blundered ahead into the First World War in the 20th century. That interpretation stood unchallenged for 60 years, but in 2019, Dr. Michael Somerville published Bull Run to Boer War, How the American Civil War Changed the British Army. He makes the case for a new understanding of how the lessons of the Civil War were absorbed by the British Army, and we'll talk with Dr. Somerville tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa. Play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. Coming to you for the first time in several weeks from the third floor of the Brewster Building on the campus of East Carolina University here in Greenville, North Carolina. It's the end of May, the last show in May 2022, and I have been away the last two weeks uh, traveling Civil War battlefields with Stephen Ambrose Historical Tours. It is uh, great to be back, but I'm not speaking on behalf of Stephen Ambrose Historical Tours or East Carolina University or anybody else, just myself, as I always do. And likewise, my guest will represent himself and himself alone on tonight's show. So yes, it has been uh, two weeks away. Uh, the tour called This Hallowed Ground that I've uh, had the, the pleasure of leading every year at least once for the last several uh, well before the pandemic I led every year for for a while uh, 
that lasts eight days, but there's also a three-day pre-tour experience in the Shenandoah Valley. And this year I did that one as well. So that made it uh, 11 or 12 days with travel combined. It was a long haul. It, it, uh, it, it takes a bit out uh, to, to do that, and but what a great experience to see these historic sites, uh, to travel with people who are interested in the topic, uh, to work with professionals like uh, Nick, our tour manager, and Hal, our bus driver, who has done the tour so many times and heard me talk so many times that I believe he could now get tenure at East Carolina University if he were to uh, be interested in that. <clears throat> if you're at all interested in seeing Civil War battle sites, uh, I, I can't recommend it uh, strongly enough. There is one more tour, at least I'm leading one more tour this year in June, uh, June 20-something. Let's look it up here. Uh, some uh, June 18 to 26. Uh, so if you're interested, uh, come on along. It's always good to have some Civil War talk radio listeners on the bus, and if not, uh, and, and, and to just talk civil war with with everybody on on the road. The it, it I, I will say it just never gets old uh, going to these places from Manassas, Harper's Ferry, Antietam, Gettysburg. Uh, we had some excitement at Petersburg, the tour road. If you've been to the Petersburg Battlefield Park, you know that it it's a four mile stretch of the Union trenches from 1864 and 65 on the eastern side of the city. There's another one on the western side, but the eastern park is about four miles long and has a single one-lane, one-way road. So you start at the visitor center, drive through, and you come out, and the last stop is near the crater, uh, and everybody wants to see the crater. This year, the road is closed. If you're going there, it's still closed. They had a sinkhole, and because the road was built by the Civilian Conservation Corps in the 1930s, the roadbed under the modern roadbed is actually a historic artifact itself, and the Park Service couldn't just go in and tear the whole thing up and replace it. They, they need to appropriately conserve the, the historic roadbed as well as repairing the modern one. So it's, they couldn't get it fixed uh, yet. That meant we could not drive through the park. We solved it by driving around the park to the exit and walking in, the, the crater is the last stop. It meant a mile round-trip walk on a very hot 95-degree day. But everybody thought it was worth it, and we got to see the crater and many other sites on the tour. It was really a great experience. Can't say enough about it. Uh, coming home, I was delighted to find that uh, can't say enough about East Carolina University's baseball team. They have now won 15 games in a row. They've got the longest winning streak in the country. They're in the conference tournament. They won their first game yesterday. I'm probably jinxing the heck out of them by talking about them this way. But, man, do they look good. Uh, a lot of fun to watch. And it's all on ESPN+, Plus, who are not the sponsors of tonight's show uh, and, indeed, have never heard of Civil War talk radio. The unpaid, unaware that we're here sponsor of tonight's show could be the Civil War Book Review, published by LSU, Louisiana State University Press. It's online. I think if you just Google that, you can find it. Uh, the spring 2022 issue came out today, and it has a review of Meg Groling's book, First Fall in the Life of Colonel Elmer Ellsworth. Uh, she was on the show not long ago. I wrote the review 
after uh, reading the book for the show, and then I was asked to review it. And my review is much like the the discussion I had with her, very positive of what she's done with the story of Ellsworth. Highly recommend the book to you. Uh, and Civil War Monitor also came out last week with a short piece that I wrote about uh, books about Abraham Lincoln and his commanders. So I'm writing little bits and pieces here and there uh, to make up for missing two weeks of Civil War talk radio. I won't miss next week. I'll be here with you along with Elizabeth Leonard. She'll be returning to the show. We'll talk about her new biography of Ben Butler, subtitled A Noisy, Fearless Life. On the 8th of June, Sarah J. Purcell will be here to talk about public funerals and memory in the Civil War era. That book is called Spectacle of Grief. And then on June 15th, I'll be at the Civil War Institute at Gettysburg College, and I'll record some talks with people there and play them for you that night. So we'll get go almost live from the Institute on June 15th. And that will actually wrap it up for the season for the summer because I'll be away at the next tour the following Wednesday and then we're and we're done for the summer hiatus. So one of the highlights of the tour this year's Civil War, uh, Stephen Ambrose tour, was that we had three guests from Scotland on the tour. Uh, delightful people, interested, knew a lot about Civil War and everybody asked them of course, you know, well why why are you what about America's Civil War interests people from the UK? And that's a great segue to our guest tonight, Dr. Michael Somerville, author of From uh, Bull, Run, uh, Bull Run to Boer War, How the American Civil War Changed the British Army. Uh, Dr. Somerville, are you there? I am, Jerry. Uh, very pleased to be with you tonight. Well, well, thank you for joining us. I know where you are. It is the middle of the night it's actually thursday by this time i think and i I deeply appreciate you staying up late to uh to join us on the show tonight you are also the president of the uh uk civil war roundtable that's the american civil war not the english civil war uh let me ask the same question what why are people in your part of the world interested in america's civil war um that's a very good question i mean i think any, any individual in our group will will probably give you a different answer, but um, I'll, I'll I'll give you a quote from my book. That at the time there were people in Britain who thought that the American Civil War was one of the most important events for Britain, not just for America, um, because there are such close cultural ties, economic ties, political ties between the two countries. Um, so. There, there are people in our group who have ancestors who fought in the war. There are people who are in our group who are interested, not necessarily in ancestors, but in other British people who went and fought for the war. Um, there are people who are interested in it because it's such an important period of military history and military development. Mm-hmm. And there are some people who who just like it because it's such a, an amazing cast of characters. <laughs> <laughs> Um, what, so, yeah, so a, a huge range of, of, of reasons for why people are interested in war. And we have lots of people. Um, I, I, I don't know who these Scottish people are. Perhaps you can give me their names later and we might be able to persuade them to join us. Um, but um, we have lots of people who, who regularly go out to the, to the United States and, and go around the battlefields and, and know a lot of people like yourself 
and a lot of the battlefield guides and a lot of the um of the academics out there so uh, yeah we have very close ties to a, a lot of uh, a lot of people in the in the u.s so w- what about you personally what what brought you to this topic either as an academic or or, or did you what, what brought you to the civil american civil War? Um, well the, 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 there's a fairly long and convoluted story i mean i, I, <laughs> I did a history de- i did a history degree way back in the past um and i started doing a little bit of american history there and, and then sort of got interested in the whole relationship between britain and america um i in the 80s, um, I did. I, I was a war gamer. Um, that's not for not the enactment, but um, tabletop figure figure gaming. Um, and the group I was was playing with, um, we were we used to play quite a lot of competition games. And they they had a, a gap in the competition team for somebody to play the American Civil War period. And I said, yeah, I'll, I'll give it a go. And I just got hooked. And again, I think it's that. The fact that it, for, from a military history perspective, um, the 19th century is such a period of change. And the American Civil War is perhaps the, the focal point of that change in some respects. Um, and I guess that sort of leads on to the subject of my book, is that whole idea that, of how warfare changed in the latter half of the 19th century. Um, so that's how I sort of first really got involved in the Civil War. And then um, my wife is as a great deal of influence in my life and in uh, 2011 with the sesquicentennial coming up um she was actually actually worked for uh, bbc radio at the time and they were doing some programs on the civil war Um, and that's how i got involved in the round table um and i hadn't done any academic studies for a long time by that point but i was just blown away by the um the quality of the speakers that we had in 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 coming to to talk to us and also by the, the knowledge within the group and it got me back into wanting to sort of look at um, civil war and military history from a more academic uh, point of view. Um, so I signed up for for a course at Buckingham University and oops and under Saul David is um, a well known military historian over here and because of the sesquicentennial and because of the centennial of the First World War which were the two big things, the two big things at the time, I wanted in my, um, in my studies to try and link those two things together. So the idea came about was, well, you know, people say the Civil War anticipated the First World War. Why did people not see it coming, if you like? And, and that was really the basis for the, for, the, for the originally a doctoral thesis, which then became the book. Well, it is... Uh... It's a very intriguing book, and for, for those of us, I'm sure this is true of many listeners, who are interested in military history broadly, not just the American Civil War, it really does address a, uh, a you know a, a very interesting question of, of why did uh, European, specifically British military thinkers, not seize upon the lessons. But you you start out uh, discussing the historiography of this question, of, of who's written about it before. And I mentioned in the introduction, Jay Luvas. Uh, yeah. Th- that's, uh, this topic, because this is a topic of learning about the past, uh, it's important to know who, who's written about it and how people learned about it. So so the bibliography section is really you know, critical to the book. Um, Tell us, if anyone listening to the show has not read Luvas's book, uh, 
that well, you have that's your homework for next week. Uh, <laughs> but it, but in the meantime, but give give us a thumbnail sketch. What what's the traditional view that he espoused? Yeah, a, a, a couple of people have said that they felt I was a bit of unfair on um, Professor Lewis in my um, yes. in my initial chapter. That certainly wasn't my intention. Um, mm-hmm. Lewis's military legacy is an absolutely great book um, and a groundbreaking book. Um, but like any work of history, it's a it's a product of its time, and it was a product of Lewis also wrote it as a, as a book of his thesis, mm-hmm. and his thesis started out as a as an MA dissertation and it was very much a historiography of what the British Army um, learned and was teaching about the Civil War um, and it came really out of his relationship with Basil Little Hart who was a very well-known British historian at the time mm-hmm. um, so you see a lot of Little Hart's ideas particularly in this idea that the British Army did not fight you know, the, the, the world war ii was an immense trauma for the british army in lots of ways um, and people like little heart wanted to avoid this happening again mm-hmm. um and so little heart developed this idea that there was a british way of warfare which should not get involved in continental wars and and the, the indirect approach to warfare so little heart was looking at the civil war in terms of trying to reinforce that that his own personal view of what was wrong about the First World War. Um, and Louvre's picked up on that. Um, like, so, I'm going to step in just for a second. Yeah. We'll, we'll take a short break. Uh, I, I have many questions about Little Hart <laughs> and his, his thinking on this. Uh, but we'll come back and talk about that and many more yeah, things sure. with our guest tonight, Michael Somerville. He's the author of Bull Run to Boer War, How the American Civil War Changed the British Army. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com Psych Up Live with host Dr. Suzanne Phillips offers a psychological perspective on coping with common and current life issues. This show addresses topics as varied as marital stress, insomnia, depression, raising teens, campus violence, and building self-resilience. Listen in as Dr. Phillips and her guest experts share the latest in books, findings, and information that will inform and enhance your life journey. Psych Up Live is heard every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Today, many doctors prescribe basic pharmaceuticals to their patients who aren't feeling well or have various aches or pains. Is this the right course of action for all patients? We don't think so. Find out about healthy, natural ways to help you feel your best by tuning in to the CBD Ed Show with host Ed Cheney. Ed and his guests will explain full-spectrum CBD, using the whole hemp plant for good health and answer all of your questions about CBD and natural treatment in general. Listen Fridays at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern, on Voice America Variety. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. 
If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. Talking tonight with Michael Somerville, author of Bull Run to Boer War, How the American Civil War Changed the British Army. So, Mike, the last before we actually lined up the show for leisure reading, I was reading Brian Bond's memoir of being a military historian in, in the British academic establishment. And he was also uh, an acolyte of, of Basil Littleheart to some extent. And between that and then reading your book, I get the idea that uh, that Littlehart's influence on, on British military writing and thinking uh, was just you know, can't be overstated, and uh, and that he wasn't always right, and, and that in some ways we're still <laughs> dealing with the uh, the after effects of that. Is that a fair conclusion? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I mean the, the the two people who really influenced Louvers, but it was particularly Little Hart, but also J.F.C. Fuller. And both Little Hart and Fuller were very, very influential from the sort of 20s and 30s onwards. They were um, pioneers of uh, mechanized warfare, armored warfare within the British Army. Um, so, of course, with the, the First World War, then the Second World War, they, they became very much the foremost thinkers in, in British military thought. And Little Heart, in particular, became um, very prominent. I think now there's been a back, bit of a backlash about that. And I think a lot of modern historians would be very critical of Little Heart. Um, there have been very, some very critical reviews by um, Alfred Cassell, for example, of um, his book on Sherman, which is still, you know, still mm-hmm. widely read in the Civil War community. Um, but has been heavily criticised in, in, by more recent historians. Um, yeah, I, I, I have a lot of problems with Little Hart. I, I think he's less consistent than he certainly would have made himself happy <laughs> in some of his views. <laughs> um, but I think, as I say, what, what was interesting when I when I started studying how Louvis's book came about was to go back through how it how 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 it emerged. Mm-hmm. how important Little Heart was in shaping Lewis's ideas. And therefore, the, the fact that what I had expected was it was very much an American view of what the British Army learned, but actually it was really, it was almost a British view of what the British Army learned, but huh. given an American voice, if you like. <laughs> so, so what made you suspect that there there's more to the story, that perhaps, you know, Lewis, was it the kind of sources he looked at? Yeah, I, I, I took a, I, I wanted to take a different approach. Um, mm-hmm. but again, I, I, there's been a lot of revisionism within British military history about the First World War as well in recent years. Mm-hmm. Um, so again, this idea that the First World War has been portrayed as, as, as a very badly fought war, uh, to, put a short, to put it shortly. Um, but a lot of people now are saying, well, actually, you know, the, the generals had to cope with very difficult problems um, and they, they cope with those problems better than perhaps they've been given credit for. Um, so I sort of extrapolated them back that backwards and said, well, OK, so what were the problems which the people who went to the Civil War, what did they actually think they were trying to solve and how did they cope with that? So rather than looking, looking at what they wrote about the war, which is very much what Lewis's book 
talked about. Mm-hmm. I wanted to try and to, to, to say what did they what 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 were they what were their uh, ideas about what warfare how warfare was developing and how warfare would look in the future and how much did the civil war shape that um and my my view at the end of all of that was that they actually understood what was going on a lot better than people have given them credit for so when when reading that and you know i started reading the book as as many people do uh i read the conclusion uh, <laughs> after I read the introduction the conclusion before I read the chapters uh, to, to see where it was going and and uh, the chapters bear out you, you know they make your argument uh, but somebody who hasn't read this their first response might be well how, how could the British Army have done uh, a great job look at its record in the late 19th century uh, famous defeats like uh, Islandwana or Majuba Hill uh uh, my wand, uh, many times, and, and the, the defeats in, in Black Week in the first and in, in the Second Boer War, mm-hmm. how could they have, have done a good job if, if they did, if they suffered so many uh, battlefield defeats? Well, yeah, I mean, the British Army suffers a lot of individual battlefield defeats, but what people tend to ignore is that we actually win the majority of the wars. Uh. Um, <laughs> Um, and again, this is this comes to my point that actually the British Army seems to learn quite well. Mm-hmm. It just doesn't learn very, in a very structured manner. And 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 there are people who say, well, that was actually a deliberate policy of the policy of the army because because the British Army fights all over the road. It has the problem that it it can't prepare for a single war. It has to prepare for almost anything. Um, and therefore, it, it, its doctrines and its tactics need to be very flexible because you just simply don't know what it is you're going to come up against, either in terms of what your opponent's going to be armed with, what their tactics are going to be, or indeed the, the geography and, and the climate that you're going to be fighting in. Um, so that's very much different from, say, France, whose, whose big army is Germany and all they have to prepare for is a war against Germany, and and vice versa almost. Well, Germany has to fight, has to think about how am I going to fight France and how am I going to fight Russia, but it but it has a, a a much more constrained problem than the British Army has in in terms of thinking about how it's going to fight. Um, and in some respects, I think the Civil War helps the British in that respect because the Civil War is fought over an enormous range of. Um, <laughs> Of, of terrain and and, over, and because it's fought over a, a, a considerable period of time, you get that. Um, it's something that uh, the British author G.F.R. Henderson, who's a, a key figure in my book, mm-hmm. um, he talked about the Americans taking some of these problems to their logical conclusion because of the duration of the war. So that you see American generals and American troops making bad mistakes at the beginning of the Civil War, but by the end of the Civil War, they're a very professional organisation. On both the Confederate sides and more particularly on the Union side, they are incredibly complex and professional organisations. So I think in that respect, I think the British saw that they had quite a lot to learn from the Americans because, again, it's this commonality of the the sort of um, citizen army 
<laughs> European armies had the luxury, if you like, of having these big conscript armies um, and, high, and, and huge numbers of trained reserves. Both Britain and America never had that concept in the 19th century. So again, the Civil War was, a, was more akin to the way in which the British thought that they were going to have to build up their armies than the European model of armies. So there's a lot of things which, uh, which have resonance between the Civil War and, the, and what the British Army thinks it needs to do. You mentioned G.F.R. Henderson, and uh, a lot of listeners will recognize that name from his work in Stonewall Jackson. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of uh, the criticisms that, that Louvas makes and that others have made is that the, uh, the British Army was overly focused on the Virginia theater, and mm-hmm. uh, many American writers uh, could, could be accused of that as well, uh, when in fact, it's in the West where you see the big sweeping movements that really determine the outcome of the war. Uh, so Henderson writes about Jackson. Is he is he just another Easterner then, uh, overly focused on what's happening in Virginia? Um, well, if I can, there's, I think there's, there's two things to that. So let me take the Henderson mm-hmm. view first. So okay. again, Henderson's writings um, are looking at, I, I, I think, are looking at British problems and looking at the Civil War as an example of how you might solve those problems. Hmm. So if you look at um, Henderson's first work on the Civil War, the the campaign of Fredericksburg, the campaign of Fredericksburg, and he actually states this in his his introduction, it's about teaching volunteer officers in Britain how how a a modern campaign is, is organized and fought. And the campaign that Henderson actually has in in mind is not defending um, Richmond on the line of the Rappahannock. It's defending London on the lines of Surrey and the Thames. That's what that's what he's really trying to teach people. Um, But he's using the Civil War as an example of how to do that. Um, And I think you've got the similar similar sort of thing in um, in his biography of Jackson, that in part it is a didactic work. It's showing people uh, what, you know, what sort of um, tactics you need to use. It's, there's very, a very uh, great emphasis on the idea of sort of getting into the mind of your opponent and the idea that you win victories by morally defeating your opponent. And these are all things which I think he's trying to teach junior and even not so junior officers in the British Army. And Jackson's Valley campaign in particular is a good example of the sort of size of campaigns that the British Army are going to be fighting. So I think I think that's I, I think GFR Henderson, because he is he is a professor at the military colleges, remember, and I think he is primarily writing didactic works. Um, if I can come back to the second question. Part of question, yes. which was about people people over focusing on the Western theatre, mm-hmm. uh, the Eastern theatre. Sorry, I think there's two parts to that. The first, and I, I talk about this in my chapter about observers, is it there's two things about the Eastern theatre. One is it's much much easier to get to. Yes, <laughs> if, you're, if you're a British Army officer, it's very easy to get to New York across the Atlantic. It's very easy to get to New York from Canada. Mm-hmm. It's a lot more difficult getting out into into Vicksburg or the Midwest or something like that. Right. Um, there are officers who do it though, um, 
And then the second thing is that a lot of the initial British interest in the war focuses on technology. And if you want to go and see modern technology, you don't go to the backwoods of, of the Western campaign. You go to um, you, you, you go you go to the Army of the Potomac because that's where all the high tech is. So um, but, 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 I, I was but, surprised by how many observers went. Uh, a lot of people actually came to see the, the civil war. A lot, a lot of officers came during the war. I was surprised by the number of them. Yeah, um, so I think traditionally we've, we've had a little bit of a, a focus on Fremantle. And right. a lot of people seem to think that the only people who went to observe the civil war went to the south. Mm-hmm. Um, if you actually look at it, there's there's probably I, I I did some rough calculations based upon leave records, and I I reckon there was a at least a hundred so uh, individuals who I would guess went went to the civil uh, to the civil war uh, battles, or, or or rather the armies because they didn't mm-hmm. necessarily all see battles, right. um, and if you actually look at these accounts, the majority of them must have gone to the north. It was just so much easier to go to the north. Um, and there are accounts which are not necessarily highly publicised, but there are accounts of people going to Meade's army after Gettysburg, for example. Um, there's lots of people who go to McClellan in the peninsula. Um, and then there's an, an awful lot of people actually go to the army in front of Petersburg, but they are almost never mentioned. Um so yeah, I think I think we've we've focused on one or two individuals who happen to have written very extensive accounts of going to the Confederacy, and not looked at all the people who actually went to um, to look at the Union Army and, as I say, particularly the Army of the Potomac. Well, I, I thought that was one of the the things that surprised me was discovering how many people went there. Um, so one of the the classic arguments, and again, this, this comes up in, in Luvas and elsewhere, is the argument that the the British Army did not understand the use of cavalry in the American Civil War. Indeed, they consider American cavalry not really cavalry, they're mounted infantry. Uh, y- y- you have a lot to say about that. Yeah, so the British cavalry, again, has come in for a lot of um, revisionism over the last mm-hmm couple of decades um and i think uh, lewis's ideas as, as you've said were very much that the british didn't understand what was going on with american cavalry and that again is partly drawn from um from his um his relationship with little heart okay. I, th- I think first of all the, ca- the cavalry question is really quite complicated there's there's an awful lot of um in in inter into arms rivalry going on here. Um, cavalry has a problem in the middle of the 19th century because it, I think it it really does fear that it's going to become obsolete. Um, you you get people, and it goes as far back as um, Lewis Nolan, who famously died at the Battle of Balaclava in the charge of the Light Brigade. Um, but he wrote a book in uh, 1853, a year before his death, on the history of cavalry, and it's the first real history of cavalry in, 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 by a British army officer. And in it, he makes this point that all of, the, all of the tendencies are to what they call these arms of precision. But cavalry doesn't have an arm of precision. It still relies on, on, on the horse and the sword. 
And there's a big question about, well, what are we going to do about it? Um, so the initial answers are, well, if they're going to if they're going to shoot faster, we need to ride faster. We need to be able to close the distance uh, in which they're shooting at us more quickly. We need to be more maneuverable. So a lot of it is initially trying to still work on those initial um, cavalry cavalry virtues, if you like, of speed and, and shock. When they what they what the British see in America, they see as something slightly different because they see the maneuverability of the American horsemen, but they don't see the discipline and and the shock effect. Mm-hmm. So, in European terms, these are not cavalry. Is is the is is the problem um, because they're not that battle winning, um, you know, shock shock cavalry force. But there are lots of other traditions within within European cavalry and more importantly within colonial cavalry. Um, So you have this concept of mounted infantry, which is somebody who's trained as an infantryman and and trained to use infantry tactics, but he uses a horse for mobility. And you then have this concept of people called mounted rifles who are cavalry in the sense that they're used for scouting and foraging and all of those sort of things, but their primary arm is a firearm, it's not the sword. So you have these different traditions about mounted troops. Um, the Americans, if you like, combined the mounted infantry and mounted rifles concept. Um, and that causes a lot of problems because you, you get a lot of military name calling. It's what I term it. <laughs> um, I'm going to have to step and, in again. Yeah, we're going to take another short we'll break. For another break. So we'll come back to it in a second, I think. We will do that exactly. Uh, we'll be back in just a moment. Talk more about the mounted arm in the Civil War with our guest, Michael Somerville, author of Bull Run to Boer War, How the American Civil War Changed the British Army. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Tune in to the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics, reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to Prokopovich G at ECU. 
proclaimingthepowerofprayer.edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with Michael Somerville, author of Bull Run to Boer War, How the American Civil War Changed the British Army. We're just talking about cavalry and the uh, the differences in American and British practices. So your, your conclusion is, as I understand it, is that the uh, that there was an ongoing, a long-term debate in the British Army about what cavalry was for and what what it could do in the 20 in the late 19th century uh and they they did not ignore the example of the civil war it it, yes broad broadly yes but it's a Mm -hmm. it is a very complex subject i mean as i say one of the problems is that the cavalry feels itself existentially threatened and remember that the cavalry is the elite of the army it's you know it, it it's the place where um, you know you're hobnobbing with sons of lords and things like that. Um, well, you're doing that in the guards as well. But mm-hmm. but the but the cavalry has precedence in the order of battle and all of that, all of these sort of things. So um, what the cavalry feel fears is that if we just become like the American cavalry, we just become quote mounted infantry. Um, you know, we're going to lose our identity. We're going to lose our prestige. Um, so they're, they're looking for a role. It's not that they think that you can charge machine guns with, with cavalry. That, that clearly stops being part of the cavalry manuals by, by the end of the century. Um, but their problem is, well, how do we do this? How do we, how do we do a charge? Because the charge is still the romantic concept behind their raison d'etre. Mm-hmm. Um, and if we can't do a charge, what else can we do? So you get a couple of things happen. One is that they they try and adopt um, different tactics. So they 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 don't want a, a massed cavalry charge as you get at the Waterloo. Say um, they want to try and use smaller squadron style tactics, but still trying to take advantage of speed and shock and surprise. The second thing is they look at how can we actually arm ourselves? How can we try and take advantage of these arms of position? And one of the things which was very interesting is that it's actually the cavalry units which start taking up machine guns first. Mm. Um, And that was really quite surprising for me because infantry units didn't want to use machine guns because the machine gun was actually a big bulky thing and it it stood out. It was a target. Mm The cavalry you want to use machine guns to provide fire support for their charge. Um, and the third thing that the cavalry look at is the exploits of um, people like Stuart uh, and, 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 and their equivalent on the Union side mm-hmm. who, are, who are doing cavalry raids um, and are really effectively um, using cavalry as a maneuver force to outflank the enemy and to um, and to bring an extra dimension to the role of cavalry, so those are those are the different things which people are looking at. And 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 in some respects, cavalry is the most innovative of the arms because they have hmm. the biggest problem. <laughs> it's, it, it's, they rise to the challenge. The, uh, <laughs> so, 
at the beginning of our conversation, you mentioned uh, wargaming, a subject uh, close to my heart and, and background as well. And in your book, you talk about how the, the British Army does not have the same uh, structure for learning, for passing on or disseminating lessons as the, uh, the, the Prussian or later German general staff. There, there's no equivalent to that. The, the Prussians also used the Kriegspiel, the, the war game, to help train themselves in the 19th century. And I, I've seen books of, of rules for war games for the late 19th century British Army. Uh, you don't talk about that a great deal here. Did, did they use that? And if so, did they absorb American Civil War lessons in it? Um, I, I must admit, I've not seen a Kriegspiel for the British Army. I've seen, I've seen some German Kriegspiel um <laughs> books from from the from the late 19th century and one of the problems the british army has is is this problem about being scattered around the world mm. um so there were uh in 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 the middle of the century there were um maneuvers on Salisbury plain in particular and places like that mm-hmm. they then fall into abeyance and they don't really come back in again until the right at the end of the century and the beginning of the 20th century and so what you get is you get a lot of different individual units interpreting manuals and interpreting things in different ways. Um, and, and that's part of the problem the British Army has. And it, 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 it doesn't have a concept of doctrine in the same way that the Prussian Army does, which is mm-hmm. all your units work the same way. Although, actually, having said that, interestingly enough, there are some articles in Prussia which indicate that that wasn't as complete as, it, as, as people make out. And actually, the Prussian, Prussian units had some, some similar problems. That there, that there were different, uh, different brigade commands or regimental commanders who, 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 who had slightly different means of drill. Um, but, yeah, I think that's the biggest problem that the British have is that they don't have a, a single way of, of wargaming or training people but that um, they do leave a lot of it down to individual unit commanders. And this is why you see some, you know, some battles being something of a disaster and some battles being really quite successful because different units come from different, either with a commander who has different concept of how to fight a battle or they've come from um, different experiences. So some of the units who go to South Africa, for example, who fought in, in the Northwest Frontier, Mm-hmm. Where they come up against people who are armed with modern weapons and 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 fight from cover and don't fight in a, in a, in, a, in a traditional way, mm-hmm. they are much more successful in the initial phases of the Boer War than troops who've perhaps only been on parade in in, in England or only fought against um, poorly armed um, troops such as the um, such as the Dervises or the or the Zulus who are a bit further back, but. So, so this is this is I think is the biggest the biggest problem that the British Army has is it relies too much on individual learning rather than on institutionalized learning. Now, one place where you you show how much the British Army learned from the American experience is, is in technology. You talk about artillery uh, and even aviation. Uh, those those are two examples. Uh, how did they? actually take those kinds of lessons to heart well this this is this is if you like is the obverse of what i was just saying so when it comes to technology the british have a very um, Mm -hmm. centralized structure and a lot of different um, mechanisms for learning um 
And this is all part of the professionalization of, of, of the military during the 19th century. So it's recognized that with the increase of technology, you have to have um, many more trained people. Um, mm-hmm. Just as um, people come out of West Point, um, you get a lot of engineer, engineering officers taking important roles in the army during the, during the course of the century. Um, there are research establishments set up um, and there's this thing called the Ordnance Select Committee, which I think is very important. And that acts as a sort of century. It, it, it's, a, it's a combination of technology and intelligence. Um, and prior to the Civil War, it really doesn't, doesn't look at America at all because they're just not important. But during the period of the Civil War, there's an awful lot of focus on, on the technology and what's happening and things like um, breech-loading rifles, for example. There's evidence given to the committee from... America, from the people who've gone off and observed what's going on in America, um, and a, a huge amount um, on things like um, the bombardment of Fort Sumter by by the U.S. Navy, because Britain is looking a at how would we fare if we if we actually sent a fleet to try and occupy a hostile coast, but also how do we defend our coasts against a foreign invasion? So. There's a lot of things which are going on on the technology front, and there are direct lessons learned from what's going on in America. So one of the main charges, uh, again going back to Luvas and and what people typically understand, is imagining the British Army fighting shoulder to shoulder uh, in in three deep ranks, and and they do that in, in certain colonial engagements. But uh, and not learning the lesson that you have to dig in that Lee's army has learned by 1864 and Grant's army has learned uh, at every stop, the moment you stop, you build a, a field fortification. You suggest that this lesson was in fact learned by the Boer War. Yes, absolutely. It's learned much earlier than the Boer War. Um, mm. So, again, one of the things that was interesting is that there's actually a series of uh, lectures at the Royal United Service Institution, the, the modern-day RUSI, which is a military think tank in London. <laughs> um, and there's a set of lectures in the late 50s, and it talks about just what you've just said, that the fact is that with all of this um, long-range um, rifled artillery, long-range rifled uh, firearms, you're going to have to. There's going to have to be a lot more digging in. People are going to have to be have to be entrenched a lot more. And people are saying this before the civil war brings about that um, that that evidence. And the the British army puts uh, an entrenching drill in its manuals at the back. In I think it's the 1871 manual is the first one that that includes it. Um, so they do adopt this. And there's a if you read some of the book the works from engineers in around the 1870s, you start to see things which 30 or 40 years in advance of of the Western Front are talking about trenches, interlocking fields of fire, the use of minefields, the use of wire, um, the use of searchlights. There's there's Mm. all sorts of technology which is going in. And the the Royal Engineers are saying, this is how we prepare a defensive position. And it's using all of these technological innovations. Um, the infantry, of course, has slightly different problems because, again, it's fighting a lot of different types of warfare. And 
But, but the infantry does still regard the firearm as it's being its primary weapon. And this is something which goes back to the British infantry at Waterloo, for example, and it's, it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's firing of um, three rounds per minute. Um, but also the British Army is also has had a, has a tradition of hand-to-hand fighting with the bayonet. So, mm. so what the what the army uh, is looking at is yes, we we want to be able to defend, but we also recognise that somehow we're going to have to take these positions. So, how do we go about doing that? Um, and it very early on, people say, well, you can't survive against this firepower unless you have much more open formations in some form. But if you have an open formation, you're not going to have the weight of attack to carry the position. Um, and if you like, we talked about the cavalry's dilemma. That's the infantry's dilemma. Right. Yes, I can stand. Yes, I can just stand on the defensive, but I can't win a war standing on the defensive. So and, and, the challenge that, is, what do I need to do in order to try and get some form of offensive that will enable me to take a position, even if it's just to take a position and then force the enemy to counterattack me? And, and that's a, a problem that the infantry in, in the American Civil War didn't solve either. You, you mentioned Emory Upton uh, and, and other officers trying to come up with solutions near the end of the war and, and after the war. But uh, you know, it's hardly a criticism of the British Army to say they didn't solve that problem <laughs> when, when no army solved that problem. And, 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 uh, and to be fair, the, the, the American Civil War is a, is a pivotal period because – the the situation in the American Civil War is the majority of troops are armed with these um, muzzle-loading rifled firearms. Mm-hmm. And the muzzle-loading rifled firearm is uniquely a weapon which favours the defensive. Because you, 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 to, to, to really load it effectively, you have to be standing up. You can load, load them lying down, but you are nowhere near as effective. Mm-hmm. So so if you are standing up behind a defensive wall, you are massively more powerful than somebody who's standing up trying to come towards you and attack you and trying to shoot at you. Um, so the Civil War is, the, the technology of the Civil War massively favours the defence. When you get the breech loaders and ultimately things like um, smokeless powder and repeating uh, weapons, the, the, the shift doesn't entirely go back but it to some extent goes back to the offensive because you can maneuver and and bring fire to bear on a particular area of the enemy line it, this topic uh i find endlessly fascinating and, and listeners i hope you do as well uh astonishingly we are out of time already and have to bring this to an end <laughs> Um, listeners, this book, uh, Bull Run to Boer War, How the American Civil War Changed the British Army, uh, I found extremely interesting. It's published by Helian Press uh, in the UK, and I have to admit I had a hard time finding a copy. I, I found a bookstore in Gettysburg that had it, I ended up getting an interlibrary loan copy. Um, but, but Mike, tell your publisher, get this book into Americans' hands. Uh, it, it, it's, uh, it's, it should be distributed by Casemate in America. Um, okay. I will, uh, yeah, and uh, it, it should be available through Amazon and things like that, if I'm allowed to say, to say that. <laughs> so, well, yeah, absolutely. Uh, <laughs> listeners, that's where you get the book. Uh, you'll enjoy it. Uh, again, we're out of time. Mike, thank you so much for being on the show tonight. Thank you very much, Jerry.
And listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.